Let me pray before we look at God's word together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Our Father, as we we see him, we hear him uh, in your word now, I pray that you would give us a heart of faith to receive uh, what the Lord Jesus says to us. Father, may we be captured with a renewed sense of awe and wonder and belief in your Son as the Saviour of the world. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Well, I don't know about you, but um, I'm sceptical of good offers. When I see, for example, an offer for a good mobile phone deal or or an internet plan that looks pretty good, um, I'm just a little bit sceptical because there have been too many times in my life where I've thought that I was looking at a good deal only to be disappointed uh, by the result. You see, I'd failed to miss all those little asterisks and disclaimers they have uh, on the offer. For example, it might say something like, great mobile phone coverage, asterisks, offer only applicable to all Australian metropolitan areas. So when I go to visit my nana in the country, no reception. High-speed internet, asterisks, offer conditional on proximity to exchange. Great, so I get to watch that 90-minute documentary over the space of eight hours now. See, it's been moments like these that have made me say to a supposedly good offer, is it really what it says? What's the catch? Well, I just wonder whether you've had that kind of scepticism towards Jesus' good offer to save from sin and give eternal life to anyone who trusts in him. I mean, just think about the verse that we Uh, the last verse from last week that immediately precedes where we are today. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Really? No hidden asterisks above the word whoever? informing us that exclusions may apply in the case of pre-existing immorality or pre-existing false religion or pre-existing hypocrisy? Is Jesus really the saviour of anybody in the world, no matter their past, who puts their faith in him? Well, the passage that we're looking at tonight gives us a resounding yes to that question. You see, in going to a woman who was a social, uh, moral, and religious outcast, Jesus is showing us in gripping drama that he really is the saviour of the world and that no one is off limits to his offer of eternal life in the presence of God. So what we'll do is we'll try and follow the story, because it's a great story, uh, as we read it in our Bibles, before thinking about what it all means for us. You can follow along on your outline if you like. I've just labelled each section uh, the, the shocking conversation, 
a needed lesson and a rich harvest. So first, a shocking conversation. Jesus speaks to an outcast woman and offers to give her eternal life. But how did Jesus find himself in this conversation with this woman? Well, we're given that answer in the first three verses. We see that Jesus has been compelled to leave Judea because of hostility from the Pharisees or the religious leaders who were becoming increasingly suspicious of his newfound popularity. Now, in travelling north to Galilee, verse 4 tells us that Jesus and his disciples passed through a region known as Samaria. You'll see it up there on the map. Judea is where he's come from, bottom area. Galilee is where he's going, top area. Samaria in the middle. Now, although, as you can see, it was the most direct route, it's actually significant that Jesus passes through Samaria. You see, there was a deep ingrained and centuries-long hatred that existed among the Jews towards the Samaritan people. Mutual hatred. Samaritans were descendants of the northern tribe of Israel who had been conquered by the Assyrians centuries beforehand and had intermarried with non-Jewish people following their nation's destruction. They had been influenced by non-Jewish culture and non-Jewish religion. And because of this, they were considered by many Jews as almost like pagan half-Jews who were both spiritually and religiously corrupted. Keep away was the general attitude of most Jews to a Samaritan. And verse 9 tells us that, doesn't it? Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In fact, many Jews wouldn't have even passed through Samaria. To avoid the hassle, the, the risk of possible spiritual contamination, many actually may have chosen to go east, north, and then west into Galilee. But you see, this is not what Jesus did. He enters willingly into a despised area, into an area despised by his fellow Jews. Now, it's in the middle of the day, it's hot. Jesus and his disciples have been walking for hours, and Jesus makes the call to pull over and have a rest at a little Samaritan town called Sychar. Well, his disciples head into town to grab some supplies, and Jesus takes a moment to catch his breath beside this famous well that the patriarch Jacob had dug out centuries beforehand in verse 8. And you see, it's at this spot by the well that Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman who comes to draw water, verse 7. Now, it's kind of unusual that a woman would choose to draw water from the well and haul it back to town right in the middle of the day. Verse 6 tells us it's noon. You see, most other women in the town would have been there in the cool of the day, the morning. So why wasn't she there with them? Well, as we learn more about this woman, we're going to discover that she actually has a bit of a checkered history. 
when it comes to men in the town. Verse 18 tells us that she's had five husbands, and number six isn't actually her husband, the man she's currently living with. Now, I grew up in a small town, and, and let me tell you, gossip is pretty rife in a small town. And I suspect, uh, with a past like hers, no matter what the actual facts of it all were, I think gathering water in the middle of the day suited her much better because she'd rather put up with the blazing heat of the sun than the snide remarks, the vicious looks of other women in the morning. And if you've been the subject of gossip, you'd probably agree with the decision. You see, as a Samaritan, Jews would have wanted nothing to do with this woman. And it may be that her own people didn't want much to do with her either. But what's great about this passage is that Jesus wants something to do with this woman. And so he engages her kindly in conversation by asking her for a drink. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now this shocks her. You see, in this moment, sort of all the social norms have just been thrown out the window. And she's thinking, why is this Jewish man speaking to me? Look at what she says in verse 9. What? You were a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, John tells us. You see, her world's getting rocked at this moment. But notice that Jesus' world isn't. You see, Jesus doesn't respond by saying in this moment, whoa, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon. I didn't actually realize you were a Samaritan. Uh, don't worry about the water, I'll just get it myself later. No, Jesus treats her with simple kindness by just engaging her in conversation with this request. But you see, Jesus has come to give her so much more than she could dream of. See, he has come to give her living water, eternal life. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see, Jesus comes to this woman as the gift of God. He wants to give her the gift of eternal life, living water. And if only she knew at this moment who she was actually conversing with. Imagine if she knew right there, right now, that that was the Son of God she was speaking to, the Lord of all, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But that's not what she sees right now, is it? See, all she sees in this moment is a tired-looking Jewish man who seems to be suffering from heat stroke. Ah, yes, living water, you say. Okay, and you're planning on drawing up this water uh, from the well. How exactly? See, our great ancestor Jacob made this well, and this lasted centuries. Are you saying you've got a better option than this water? 
which has lasted the test of time, verse 12. Are you saying that you're greater than our father Jacob? Well, look at how Jesus responds in verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, I've come to deal with a deeper thirst. A thirst that's not of natural water, but a thirst for God and the eternal life he brings. You see, then more than anything, that is this woman's deepest need. That's all our deepest need, and until we get that need met, we're going to be forever thirsty. Jesus offers living water that truly satisfies here. See, other things in life will always end up being unsatisfying, just like physical water, just providing that temporary satisfaction than needing a bit more. And you see, in many respects, this woman is really a picture of humanity in general. When the true God is absent from our lives, when that's the case, we seek satisfaction in all sorts of things. We try to find genuine satisfaction in a relationship, a perfect marriage, a career that is just me, an awesome diet. But you see, these things just either fail to meet expectations or one day just disappear through things like age, ill health, divorce, death. Then what? See, without this living water that Jesus offers, we will remain unsatisfied at the deepest level. It's kind of like that U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Jesus is coming to this woman, ready to meet her deepest need. But she's not exactly picking up what Jesus is putting down, is she? See, in verse 15, she's not hearing eternal life. She's hearing endless supply of water, which in her mind is great. No more trudging back and forth in the middle of the day. But you see, Jesus won't let her fail to see her deeper need for God. And so he prods her heart a little bit. Jesus wants this woman to see her need for God against the backdrop of her life without him. Verse 16, Jesus said, go call your husband and come back. And you can almost feel her defenses kick in at this point. Because she doesn't want to talk about husbands right now. That topic is a bit too raw. And so she responds actually quite cleverly by saying something that is technically true, but not the whole picture. I have no husband. See, look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, Well, you are right when you say, I have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you 
now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Now we just need to pause and let that sink in for a moment. You see, though Jesus knows everything about this woman, he loves this woman. See, all she's bringing to the table at this point seems to be a a bit of a messed up and perhaps sinful life. But what Jesus is bringing to the table is a renewed and forgiven life that extends into eternity. And the offer is free. Remember back in verse 6, Jesus is the gift of God. No asterisks, no disclaimers. Now I imagine this woman is both shocked that though Jesus knows her, he is still even talking to her. But I also imagine that she is somewhat embarrassed by the mention of her past. Perhaps it conjures up feelings of maybe shame or regret. And so perhaps to take some of the intensity out of this conversation at this point, she kind of sidetracks this conversation by bringing up a really heated theological debate between Jews and Samaritans. Maybe we've done that ourselves to avoid being a bit exposed. You see, she brings up the age-old argument between Jews and Samaritans over which location is the true place to worship God and come into his presence. Jews claim Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Samaritans claim Mount Gerizim in the region of Samaria. Look at verse 19. So the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. You see, she may have wanted to sidetrack the conversation, but notice how Jesus, without dismissing her words, uses this new discussion topic to keep speaking of her need for God. You see, the heart of her problem is is not the daily trip to get water, or the, the string of failed relationships, or the, the isolation. They're all symptoms. The real heart of her problem is that she does not have God at the center of her life. She is not worshiping the true and living God. Now, we might look at her as an extreme case, but believe it or not, this woman is actually a good picture of humanity at large. People worship everything but God. The world doesn't love God. We were told in John chapter 3 that the world loves darkness, our evil deeds. We don't want him at the centre of our lives. We'll take sex, money, power, career, looks. But see, what Jesus is offering to her now is true and satisfying worship of the one who deserves it. In talking about this theological debate, Jesus is at the same time showing her what true worship is. See, look at verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet our time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. See, while the Jews had indeed worshipped the true God in his temple, as they uh, rightly throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is saying that the place of worship now, the geographical location, is actually irrelevant now that he's arrived. To come into the presence of God and be the kind of worshipper that God wants no longer happens by coming to a place but a person. In the person of Jesus, we receive the spirit that he gives us to have new hearts to love God, which is John chapter 3. In Jesus, we find God's truth. By listening to him, we know what it is to worship him and live a life pleasing to him. Remember what Jesus goes on to say in John fourteen six: I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, no one is brought into the presence of God except through me. If you want to come into God's presence, you need to come to Jesus. And see, that's the message that the woman is on the cusp of grasping here. She knows the Messiah holds the key to everything Jesus is saying. And she says in verse 25, when he comes... He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. See, Jesus is saying eternal life in the presence of God comes through me. Now, it's, just import- it's important to just step back and appreciate what's just happened in this whole conversation. Jesus comes to a woman with a messed up, sinful life and is offering her eternal life in the presence of God. Uh, Ruth and I had our eight-year wedding anniversary on Monday. And it was nice. The kids stayed up too late the night before, and so they slept in. And we had pancakes uh, while they slept. That never happens, by the way, so it was a, it was a good gift. Uh, one of the questions that we asked each other over pancakes was this. What do we love most about being married to each other? But our responses were actually the same. Though you know me, you love me. Though you see all those little moments of pettiness, selfishness, grumpiness, you still love me. And that's a kind of wonderful feeling. Though you know me, you love me. And that's kind of what we're seeing with this woman in Jesus. But on an infinitely greater level. 
Jesus knows her. Jesus loves her. He's aware of the mess. He's aware of the sin. Though he knows her, he loves her. Though he knows her, he came to save her. See, we can look at this woman and think, it's true. God really does love the world. But he sent his only son. Jesus came to save no-name outcasts, sinners, like this woman, like you and me. He came to make them into true worshippers with the God at, with God at the centre. And see, what we see next is that what happens here isn't just a once-off. No, saving sinners through his finished work on the cross is what Jesus was sent to do. And that's part of the lesson that he gives to his disciples. So let's move to a necessary lesson. You see, when the disciples rejoin Jesus, it is clear that they are shocked to see him talking with this woman. That Jesus was talking with a woman would have been in itself uh, a somewhat inappropriate sight for a religious Jew of his day. But I suspect that the disciples assume she's a Samaritan woman, double whammy. And so you can imagine the scene. They all walk up to Jesus, perhaps snacking on some of the supplies they've bought. Then kind of abruptly, they kind of stop a few metres from the well and just look. Well, what the? No one's game enough to voice their surprise, but we're kind of told what they would have said in verse 27. What, what do you want to the woman? Oh, and to Jesus, why are you talking with her? Now, I imagine that the woman is, is used to that look that would have been on the disciples' face. I assume she's seen that look a thousand times, actually. You know, that's the look that has driven her to collect water in the middle of the day when no one else is around. That's the look that reminds her of how messy her life has become. But that look doesn't have the same effect right now. Because she has just met someone claiming to be the Messiah, who she's getting the feeling is truly the Messiah. She's just met Jesus, who is willing to break all the social norms to give her eternal life living water, and that's powerful. And we see how powerful it is in the fact that she leaves her water jug right where it was, the sole purpose for her being there, and she takes off back into town to tell everyone about this man. And did you notice that where once she was trying to avoid the townspeople, now she can't stop talking to them all. Verse 29, this is what she says. Come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? You see, she's not a professional evangelist at this point. All she says is, come see a man. And what happens? They come. 
But you see, while this amazing scene is unfolding in verses 28 to 29, behind the gates of Sychar, that town, the disciples are just still standing around, a little confused as to why Jesus would be there talking to this woman. Perhaps it just was that he wasn't thinking straight. Maybe if he just eats something, gets his blood sugars up, he'll be right and we can just all move on from this awkward situation. So what do they say to him in verse 31? Rabbi, eat something? But Jesus doesn't want to move on from this conversation, does he? You see, this was an opportunity to teach his disciples about his core mission to do his Father's will by saving all types of people through his finished work, even Samaritans. Look at verses 31 to 33. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples, again, a little bit confused, said to each other, could someone have bought him some food? Verse 34, my food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not interested in physical food right now. What I want, and what I want you to know, is that what I live for is to keep doing what I just did with that woman. Because that is the will of God, that sinners might be saved through believing in me. Jesus' words here show us his single-minded mission to save people all sorts of people, by his finishing his work of dying on the cross and rising again to life. It's through Jesus' death on the cross, that is his finished work, that people like the Samaritan woman, like you and I, will find eternity. Life forever. That is how Jesus saves us. He is the lamb who takes away our sin. Our misplaced worship, our evil deeds that we love, he takes them all on the cross. Now I imagine at this point that all those people the woman, the woman has spoken to are making their way down the road to this well. The question is, how are the disciples going to view them as they come down that road? Enemies that they need to keep their distance from? Religious heretics? No, no, says Jesus. I want you to open your eyes and see what I see. You don't think my work begins when we make it to Galilee and start meeting people kind of like you and me. No, no, my work of saving the world is happening right now. Look at verse 35. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. 
Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Jesus is teaching his disciples to open their eyes and see the harvest as he does. In verse 38, Jesus anticipates the time when he will send his disciples out into the harvest. Jesus would have done the hard work for paying for sin on the cross and rising to life, and they are to reap a harvest of souls by pointing people to Jesus' finished work on the cross. And in that last section, we see a picture of the rich harvest that Jesus produces in this enemy territory. Point three. You see, Jesus had eyes to see that the fields were ripe as he walked through Samaria. And within a couple of days, he had reaped a great harvest for eternal life. Because the Samaritans had been persuaded by the woman's testimony, verse 39, they plead with Jesus to stay on for a couple of days. And just look at the results in verse 41. Because of his words, Jesus' words, many more became followers. They said to the woman, oh, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. See, Jesus had gone out into the world beyond Judea, into hated Samaria, and there he reaps a great harvest of souls. It started with a despised woman. It continued with a despised people. See, the words of John 3, 36 are true. Whoever believes has eternal life. No one is off limits to Jesus. Because as the Samaritans rightly affirm, he really is the saviour of the world. Now what does all this mean for us that Jesus really is the saviour of the world? Let me just suggest two things. First, it means that Jesus is the saviour who came for you. And second, it means that he's the saviour who came for the world beyond you. See, first and foremost, this passage reminds us that we have a saviour in Jesus. Jesus' commitment to go into hostile territory to save a woman who is spiritually confused, perhaps morally messed up, despised by people in her community, that shows us his commitment to save anyone who will trust in him. I was perusing through the OAM, Order of Australia Medals, um, that were awarded yesterday on Australia Day. See, so many people out there doing good things for so many others Service to drug and alcohol programs. Service to the Country Women's Association. But you see, the ultimate honour for bringing good to human society actually belongs to Jesus. Because he deals with our greatest need to be saved from our sin and to receive eternal life. Now, we know nothing about what happened to this woman in the story beyond this picture. 
Did her life become less complicated? What happened to the bloke that she was with? We don't really know. But you see, even if her circumstances remained exactly the same, everything had changed for her because after meeting with Jesus, her deepest need was met in the living water he offered. That's what I need. That's what you need. Uh, If you're here tonight and you don't yet follow Jesus, make tonight the night where you take his offer of living water because that offer is for you too, not just this woman, not just the Samaritans. Uh, If you want to talk about that, I can help you. The Christian you came with perhaps can help you in that conversation. But you see, this passage also reminds us that Jesus came as saviour to the world beyond us. God didn't just send his son for people who are like you and I, but for all people. The disciples had to be reminded of this, didn't they? Uh, I imagine they were happy to pass through Samaria as quickly as possible and get on with the real ministry in Galilee. But Jesus holds them up and says, Open your eyes. Look, right here, the fields are ripe for harvest. See, we need to learn to see the world as Jesus does. As as I was thinking about this passage and sitting up in the top level of Bundy uh, during the week, I kind of looked out and saw all the bustle of people coming in and out of factories, and I thought, I've never once really chatted to them. I've never once mentioned them in my prayers to God. I've never really once considered what what it would take for me to bring them the life-saving message of Jesus. And I thought as I was looking out at these people bustling around everywhere, maybe it's time for me to open my eyes to the harvest. You see, there are going to be people who will reject the message of Jesus. We know that. But there are going to be many people in our community, just like in uh, the Samaritans of Sychar, ready to hear the gospel and believe. There are many people overseas in foreign countries ready to hear and believe. And the great reminder in this passage is that we don't have to be evangelistic superstars going out into that harvest. All this woman did did was simply speak of what Jesus had done in her life, just what she knew about that, and then say, come see a man. And that's what we're doing, isn't it? Speaking of Christ's work in us, of his death and resurrection, and directing people to him in his word. Oh, in just a moment, we're going to be singing a song called Living Hope. And the chorus says this, Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. See, the the woman we've read about today 
found that genuine freedom from sin and from death through the living water given to her by Jesus. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then let's sing this song as a prayer to the one who brings us living water, to the saviour of the world. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that though we don't deserve to be saved, you have come into a world in rebellion against you, a world that put you to the side and other things in front. Father, we thank you that you came to that world. Thank you that you sent your Son as Saviour of our world. Father, help us to trust him, to cling to him as our only living hope. In Jesus' name, amen.